Welcome, friends, to Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith over a pint. Tonight, we discuss the sacraments of baptism and communion. We discuss whether God can be both love and wrath. And we ask what is appropriate for churches and pastors uh, when it comes to the arena of politics. Politics is on many minds uh, as we're heating up into the election year. We'll also open it up for any questions you have out there. You can submit those via Twitter or on Facebook. On Twitter, follow us at PubTheology and use hashtag PTLive. On Facebook, you can comment at facebook.com slash PubTheology. Great to have you with us. Those who are tuning in live and those who are listening later, welcome. We're live Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and you can always uh, listen later at soundcloud.com slash pubtheologylive. So welcome, friends. I am joined tonight by Ogin and Tina, and my name's Brian. Welcome, folks, and tell us uh, what's happening and what you're uh, drinking tonight. Um, this is Ogin, and um, embarrassingly enough, I'm just drinking a plain, regular old uh, Blue Moon. Did not make it to the craft beer store in time before they shut their doors, so I'm like I'm like hitting the the back of the fridge reserve stash um, right now. And it's good to have a reserve stash. That's all it, right. It, it is. It is um, for emergencies just like these. But yeah, just plain old ordinary blue moon without the orange. Like there's no orange, no limes, nothing in the house. So it's kind of like a naked blue moon. And Tina, again, noticing you were not bopping your head as the theme song was playing. <laughs> Um, how how many times do I have to tell you I don't follow the crowd? Well, follow the beat at least. Oh. I danced my own beat, honey. <laughs> that is true. So this you just, is Tina. You just, won that out. you just won that debate right there. You're good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm drinking. It's the Velvet Devil Merlot. Merlot. And it's from Washington State. Okay. And, and that's in honor of, um, I'm like the devil's advocate on this show. What'd you say, Hogan? From Sideways. I'm not drinking Merlot. You did not see the movie Sideways? Classic. Yeah. You did not? So was, that a, that, was that a yellow bottle or a green? My bottle? Um, yeah, actually, most wine bottles are, um, re most red wine bottles are, They're, it's called like a dark leaf green. Yeah. And when, so when the wine's in it, it looks black. Well, yeah, absolutely. Filter out certain light. Yeah, that lights it so the wine doesn't turn faster. That's the real reason. I was just saying the color, you know, looks black. Well, so far, we've got a beer and we've got a beer and a wine. Red wine, dark, anyways, regardless of the color of the bottle. Whatever. Okay, go ahead. I'm trying Brian. to segue into my beverage, but it's not happening. Yeah, please, please do it. But well, she just says that I need explanation. It just don't make sense. Okay. <laughs> So we've got a beer and a wine, and I'm drinking, what is this, a Bloody Mary tonight, so mixing it up. Wow. What? Come on, you're getting a little... Uh... We're all getting a little crazy here. <laughs> we forgot our special fourth guest. Special... Our special fourth guest. Wait. Exactly. Wait, so no, uh, no, anything no. for the good of the whole before we get rolling here? Yes. Anybody hear that? Is it not working? <laughs> it's too loud. It's too low. All right, I'll play with it later. Let me try it. Let me try it one more time. You see Yoda. I don't know why it's not. I ah, forget it. Oh, Brian, uh, carry on, please. I, I, He's a mess I, there tonight. Was a, there was a slight disturbance in the force there. That's all I can say. <laughs> Worked in rehearsal. 
<laughs> it did. And give me a proper soundboard. All right, ignore me. Carry on. It's really hard, Ogan. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Oh, hey, just wondering if there's anything you know that uh, our listeners are dying to hear about you uh, before we get into our questions. Dying to hear about who? Me? You? Any of you? Any of us? Uh, Maybe not. No, let's just jump into the questions. We're jumping in. So question number one, I think, is a fun one. And that is, uh, what is one item that you should really throw away but probably never will? I'm a minimalist. I don't have a whole lot. I don't keep things. Um, if anything, I have to say, I, I keep my books that I absolutely love. And I have, I have half a shelf of books that are from um, my kids' childhood. And, like, most people keep, like, you know, the Dr. Seuss and stuff like that. Mine are all the encyclopedias, like the Encyclopedia World History, like, but the kids' versions. My kids will never look at them again. I still have my art history book from, from college. Like, I just, I don't know. I should get rid of them. But, and I'm a big one that I think books should stay in circulation, so it's horrible that I'm actually hanging on to them. And aren't they vastly outdated by now? Yes. Okay, just check. Is knowledge ever outdated, Ogan? Well, yes. Sometimes <laughs> the earth was flat. So. Sometimes. That's what this show is about, right? Uh, you know. Filtering through uh, information and chucking Glad stuff that's outdated and downloading that. the update. Earth flat. <laughs> you know, earth centered the universe thing. You know, yeah. knowledge. So what, what, what don't you throw away, Ogan? Um, the thing I should probably throw away... Uh, is my bedroom slippers. So a few years ago, um, I got this pair of, um, from Brookstone, these absolutely awesome bedroom slippers, like memory foam in the bottom, um, you know, that kind of like plush material. And they, they had a uh, like a rubber sole, so you can actually wear them outdoors a little bit. So right now, it, they're tattered. There's the, the, the memory foam cover piece is like almost worn down the soles have holes in them they are they're just a wreck but they're still comfortable and I still shuffle around in them but I think it might be time they go I don't think I yeah it might it might be time for them to go that's that's what I got the bedroom slippers there you go there you go I think go. if they're still comfortable you keep them that's just my theory <laughs> I think the memory foam the memory foam is starting to forget because of that <laughs> So they are losing a little bit of the comfort, but but I think the I think the memory of how comfortable they used to be is still oh. in my head. So they're really probably not as comfortable as they really are, but I remember them being. So it enhances their sense of comfort. Um, so so yeah. you get a new pair and remember. I hate to tell you this, Ogan, but you've actually been walking around barefoot and you threw those. Out <laughs> <the window. laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> Me, 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 me and my hobbit feet that are so so. <laughs> How about you, Brian? What would what don't you throw away? Uh, that's a good question. I have a hard time getting rid of clothes, so I'm sure I have, uh, you know, some old T-shirts that just uh, I never wear but keep for nostalgia purposes and should be either <laughs> turned wife... into rags or something. Does your wife do your laundry and like kind of like they disappear and you don't notice? I'm sure that has happened. I'm sure that has happened. <laughs> yep, yep. And, the, you know, things like books. I keep 
more books than I need to and stuff like that. It's uh, hard, always hard to get rid of books. Are any of those okay. t-shirts like classic prints you could like resell on eBay or something? Um, not in a condition that would garner a sale, probably. And why are you wearing a scarf and hat indoors? Like, is it really cold where you're at? <laughs> is it, yeah, it's it's I chilly, you know. Books. It's it's on the cold side, and this just keeps me warm. All right, just checking. I'm up north, you know. Yeah, that you are. That is true. That is true. Got got to keep warm. See the graduation. So you you are you are in hat and scarf. I'm in a sweater, and Tina looks like she's wearing a t-shirt or something. Um, I'm not wearing a t-shirt. Or well, you're not wearing you, like you got a single layer going on. Yeah, like, it's warm in my bedroom. Better. Oh, I just announced I'm in my bedroom. <laughs> as we move, as the as us who are on the podcast move geographically south. Yeah, wear, that's true. We're, we're a bit less. That's all I'm saying. That's true. Very true. All right. Okay. Yeah, it's been 60s lately. Just oh. so you know. Shut up. <laughs> wow, 60s. Yeah, we all, we've had we had rain today. It's uh, it was mid mid 30s here today and. It's kind of yucky. We have a thunderstorm tonight, actually. So if the power goes out, uh, hopefully my battery keeps going. Hopefully. All right. All right. So let's let's keep moving on. Our, I'm getting into uh, our theological topic. One of our theological topics tonight uh, is on baptism, and the question is, what does baptism mean to you? Have you been baptized? Was it uh, as an infant or a young child? Did it happen when you were older? Do you have any memory of that? What do you think it signifies? That kind of thing. And if you haven't had that experience, what does baptism look like from the outside in? I I was I was baptized, and I think I think that in different traditions, baptism occurs at different times and means different things. So, uh, you know, I think in the Catholic tradition, you, you know, you baptize a baby. Um, but for me, growing up in a more evangelical uh, experience. My baptism was, I think, like at 11 or 12, where you know, I, I, you know, first you, you, you make that um, acceptance of Christ as your Savior, and then if you choose later on as a further, I guess, profession example of your faith, you get baptized. And it was a little traumatic for me because it was a full water immersion baptism, and in Barbados we do this in the ocean. And I kind of have this like irrational fear of drowning, so the fact that somebody was like ducking me under the water was uh, a little traumatic for me. Um, and there were no doves descending from heaven, so it was a little bit anticlimactic after it happened. Uh, man. I'm sorry, how old were you? Twelve. So, okay. Yeah. So. And how long were you under? Um, I don't. Uh, you know. Not long enough to cause harm, but long enough to make me freak out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it was probably like a second or two. Like are I you one of those people that? Are you one of those people that grew up on an island and you can't swim? No, I can swim. I just as soon avoid being in the ocean. We because I grew up on an island, the fear of the ocean was instilled in us as children, because oh. it, you know, nobody wants you know kids going and drown. So we were. We were instilled to um, do our best not to go in the water unsupervised and never ever go further than you can stand and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I grew up terrified of the ocean 
And, you know, my father's idea of teaching me how to swim was throwing me in where I couldn't stand up. And But baptism was in the ocean. In the ocean, yes. So that would kind of to put the fear of God into you, is that right? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's fitting. <laughs> uh, apparently, apparently worked. Yeah, no, no, no swimming pools or baptismal fonts in the churches. We had the ocean. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I, if you got all that beautiful water, you might as well use it. I think I like that. Um, so for me, it 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 it, it meant uh, a at the at the time a like a profession of faith and um, a symbolizing as best I can remember. Um, a greater commitment and dedication to my my spiritual path or um, something like that. I don't remember. I don't really. I don't really give a lot of credence to baptisms now. Okay. That's the way I am. Yeah, maybe we'll come back to that uh, in a second. And talk about is there any corollary and unity, or if not, why not? Uh, but maybe uh, Tina, any uh, baptism experience? I was baptized as a baby. Um, that's kind of the thing you do. Um, what what religion was this? What faith? You know, I don't remember when I was like a baby, but I grew up in a UCC church. You did, yeah, mainline. Yeah, so I don't know like what, often baptized infants. Yeah, like I don't know like what church my mom baptized me in. I just know that from the time I could remember, we were going to a UCC church. But I don't think it was the one I was baptized in. That's why I'm not quite sure. Because in all honesty, Ogan, there were like 10 churches in my area. And I attended a lot of them with my friends and stuff. And to me, there was no difference between all the churches except for the Catholic Church. That was the only one that really um, seemed very different to me. All the rest of them, they were, they were kind of the same. I didn't really understand the differences when I was younger. So a little bit of a church hopper were you. Well, no, I went to the same church, but I, like when I'd stay at friends' houses and stuff, I'd, I'd go to church with them. Ah, gotcha. I tell you what, the Catholics had the best uh, youth group. They were a lot of fun. <laughs> there you go. Some, some would still argue that is the same. That is true. That <laughs> but I, I do know a lot of people um, in their adulthood get um, rebaptized into their faith when they can actually make that decision. Hmm. Right, and I think when I grew up, that was what it was. You, you didn't get baptized until you were... Old enough to make that. Articulate that you understood what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my experience was similar to yours, Tina. Uh, in my tradition, uh, the practice infant baptism. So I was, you know, six months or something, uh, less than one, I believe, and baptized as a baby. So fond memories of that, uh, or none at all, actually. Um, full, full immersion it, or just a sprinkling? Just a sprinkling, yep, no uh, holding the babies under the water, just a, you know, the pastor would kind of cup his hand in the water and, and I baptize you in the name of the Father, sprinkled on the forehead and the yeah. Son and the Holy Spirit. And, I mean, really, I think the the meaningful thing is for the parents and the family members who um, are sort of dedicating, it's more than, it's not a dedication, but they're sort of entrusting this child um to the care of God in a way, and uh, it's an interesting, interesting thing because then as you grow older and you see friends from other traditions who are getting baptized older, and in our tradition you did not get baptized again; that was considered anathema. <laughs> and so, 
you would you would sort of look longingly at at other friends who would get to go through a baptism experience, and we had something else that we called profession of faith, where we would sort of stand up in front of the church and share, you know, hey, I take this seriously, and I'm committing my life to Jesus, etc. Um, but there was no water involved, so little. And Brian, what little, religion little is fun. that? What what church? Uh, you that denomination was uh, the Christian Reformed Church of North America. It's a uh, okay. Protestant uh, Protestant denomination in the Reformed tradition, uh, coming out of uh, Europe initially. So, so so do we do we do we think that the idea of baptism, especially for uh, of a baby, before we make a Individual profession of faith. What, what are we kind of doing, like a you know protection spell, or whatever? Well, and, and I think that's, that's what question. it is. I, I think that's what it is. I think it roots in if you're not baptized, you don't go to heaven. Yes. I think uh, I think there were fears of that, certainly dating back to, you know, earlier church time, pre Middle Ages, Middle Ages, and so forth, when you had a high infant mortality rate. I think getting that baby baptized was key because then there was just this sense that, well, now it has God's blessing, and if anything happens, it will be with God. Um, I'm not sure how hard-coded that actually was in theological um, doctrines, but I think popular belief and practi in practical ways, that certainly was how people took it. Um, but... I. You know, I think at its best, though, it's maybe a better a better corollary to it is um, circumcision in Judaism. And so you offer the child, you know, at the eighth day, um, and have the circumcision, and it's sort of this um, sign that you are a part of the wider community of faith. And it's sort of this: we're entrusting this child both to God and to the community. And so it's the parents acknowledging, I can't raise this child on my own. I need this community to help raise the child. And also entrusting that God will be faithful in that process. Um, That's what a circumcision so. stood for? Well, I mean, it's circumcision, also on was, circumcision. <laughs> well, it was also a very tribal thing. And, and maybe there were health reasons also. But, what, wait, you know. What did you think it was all about, Tifa? I... I no, I knew it was like faith-driven and, and you know health reasons and whatnot, but to be part of the community, like yes, <laughs> I'm off no, no, but now. It, yeah, it was a way of saying you're Jewish, you're you're one of us. Okay. Uh, it was a, it was a key part of uh, way back in the identity. Way back in the day, that's how you knew if somebody was Jewish or not. You had to you know flip it out and see, compare. Really, I I knew I always knew guys were like that. <laughs> Yeah. Personally, I think, personally, I think the secret about circumcision it, it was it was invented and implemented by a woman. Um, a very cruel, angry, right. bitter woman. Yeah, yeah, to get some revenge on us because I can't fathom that a man, you know. Yes, we have this old. If know, it were a woman, it would not have been done to a baby. It would have been done to a full-grown man. Well, the first ones were the first ones. Oh, okay. You know. Oh, see, then you guys are the ones who twisted it. With God. You know, full-grown men were circumcised. Okay. So something I always wrestled with um, as a thinking about this issue and, and growing up in a church that practiced infant baptism was, does this happen in the New Testament ever? Do we ever see babies being baptized in the New Testament? Because um, we have certainly have stories of adults and people who can make a decision. Um, New Testament, period. There are not a lot of baby stories. Not a lot of baby stories, and and so what what was often referred to was a story where 
let's say uh, Paul and Silas are in prison and they break out, or there's the earthquake, but they don't leave. And then the jailer right. says, you know, what must I do to be saved? And they say, you must be baptized, you and your whole house. And so it's inferred that there were pro there had to be some infants or children who weren't of an age to know what was happening, but the whole household was baptized. So it was a communal thing, not just an individual and God thing. And it was, so I could see how that progressed into you have to get it done as soon as possible. Yeah. God, he didn't say he had to be circumcised. That would have put a crimp in What do you call back? That's a question for another day. Brian, put that on the list. We'll talk about circumcision another day. He brought it yeah, up. It's, like, it's not unrelated. It's not unrelated. <laughs> I'm going following the trend of the conversation. And you, I mean, you could argue that you know Christianity growing out of Judaism, uh, circumcision was one of the main initiation rites into the community. And if you came in as a as a Greek or a Gentile, you would have to be circumcised even as an adult. Um, but then that became baptism, became that identifier. Now you are a part of the community. Yeah, because because people got tired of getting snipped. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, we got. We just have a little water and be done with it. <laughs> Put the knife away. Uh, we gotta we gotta pull. Be friends. <laughs> got a post on Twitter from JV Beck ninety who says, "I think we refer to baptism here, a sign and seal of God's covenant promises to be my God, not of myself or my own doing." Sign this deal of God's covenant promises to be my God. So the baptism is, uh, I guess he's uh, saying from his point of view, it's it's about God's promise to us as opposed to, uh, or in addition to us committing ourselves to God. It's 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 both ways. That's right. That's right. Thanks for that tweet, Jonathan. Uh, and he's coming from uh, the Reformed tradition. I know Jonathan, and he's articulating very well that. Yes, the, the baptism when done um, in a Reformed tradition is understood to be reflecting promises God has made. And so it's not about a decision I am making so much as trusting that God has made certain promises um, and that I can entrust what he is doing and that he'll be faithful in that process. Has God ever made promises he didn't keep? Oh, man, put that on the sheet. Right? No, answer it now. I'm not putting it on the sheet. Oh, answer it. You want me to just do this on the fly? Has God ever... <laughs> Brian needs to think about stuff. <laughs> yeah. So these questions. i gotta, I got to look up the uh, theological anthologies. Has God ever made promises, he yeah. or she? I mean, so, 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 you know, we read we read about all these all these covenants that, that God made from, you know, going all the way back to Abraham and, and, and forward. Um are they are they are they covenants that were exclusively made a f to and with um, the Jewish people, the Hebrews? Is it is it you know do we as Christians who are kind of like the offshoot of Judaism do, do those promises apply to us too? I know Paul wrote a bunch about this, but not just coming to mind right now. Um, you know, do those do those promises apply to, apply to us and? You know, there were there were a lot of promises about you know people being smote if they did certain things, and you know, let me tell you, not a lot of people being smote these days. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, there were certain promises that seemed to be very uh, localized or specific right. to, you know, the recipients who were hearing that promise. But then there are broader ones, um, like to Abraham, where he promises um, that I will bless you, make you into a great nation, and you will be a blessing 
to the nations. And so a promise like that that goes beyond one person to their progeny, whether that's their physical um, progeny or their spiritual progeny, people are quicker to say, well, those promises still have some weight or some validity, and it's not out of line to uh, hold God to those promises. Not to mention that the promises were vague and totally lacking details. You know, is that easy, is that an easier promise to keep? Well, I I, I think it messes <laughs> us up. I mean, look at Abraham. You know, you know, God saying, "Hey, I'm going to make you the father of many nations," and he's like, "Well, you know, my wife is old, so I got to go sleep with the maid for that to happen." You know, I think I think the promise should have been a little more clear cut. You'll be the father of many nations. Yet through your wife, don't go sleep around. Um. So, so I, 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 it's, it's. I think it's interesting when we talk about these promises and these covenants that, um, and then to see how the people at people interpreted them and 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 what they did with them. So but, you're saying Abraham didn't have faith that his wife could get pregnant? I'm saying because the details around the promise wasn't clear, he decided to take matters into his own hands. Oh yeah, right. He. Because because just, his wife was barren. She you know, if you read the story, Abraham's wife, what's her name, Sarah? Was it Sarah? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, was barren and couldn't have children. So he's saying, Well, God's saying we're going to be a father of many nations and my wife is barren, it's obviously gotta be with somebody else. You know, maid's looking pretty good right now, let's go do this. Um as a Or maybe he had a thing for the maid and he just told everybody God told him to do it. There could be that too. Just saying. There could be that too. I'm giving God the benefit of the doubt promise, you know. Right, sorry. Carry uh, on. But you're right. He could have totally conjured that up to get a little bit on the side. But I don't think he would have because this was a very, you know, patriarchal time where it wasn't uncommon to have multiple wives and That's stuff true. like that. So I don't think he really needed an excuse. I, I see your point. That doesn't right, but that's that's a great Mark, example of promises happening and people wondering, well, are these is God going to hold to this even in the face of it doesn't circumstances don't seem to show that God's following through here, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And I think probably all of us at some point have wrestled with that, with something we've sensed God doing or not doing, and wondered what's happening here and what should I do? Yeah, well. You know me. I don't think God's promise. I'm feeling that one, Brian. <laughs> All right, so back to uh, baptism briefly. Uh, another person on Twitter says, Baptism bestows upon us a new identity, opening a way for us to live in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. And so there's the idea of it being sort of this um, group marker, this initiation experience, this um, thing that, yeah, creates an identity. And I find that yeah, I, I think there's definitely uh, something to that. But but with what he said, doesn't that mean that you have to be old enough to, to make that choice to create that new identity? Uh, can you have an identity if you're only six months old? If you don't understand it. An identity if you're 26. We're always changing our identity. That's I think true. what happens in that case is that you it's still that identity marker into the community and you, it's trusted that you will live into that identity as you as you grow up. Yeah, the community the community piece is a big part of it because I do remember as we we're talking about this that even though you know I had been in that church for a while, there there was a different sense of um, welcoming and acceptance um, after 
like baptism. It was like it was, you know, it was like entry level membership before, and now I'm like, you know, level level three membership, and it was it was a different sense of like. Okay, so is that how Jesus would have treated people? If you weren't baptized, you were on entry level. He was baptized. Well, he uh, he said, uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of his last uh, instructions before he ascended. So that's not my point, though. Did he treat the <laughs> baptized differently than he treated the unbaptized? I see what you're saying. I would say probably not. But but obviously it was relevant to him. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't have have, been have said it. Himself, and it obviously must have been traumatic for him because he got baptized and then ran off for a while. Exactly, he had a powerful baptism experience, and we could spend a whole lot of time talking about that and what did that signify and what were the precursors to baptism there in Judaism. But I think we should move on to number three. Okay, if that's okay, go for it. It's our second sacrament uh, question, and this says, "What is communion, or the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, or the bread and the wine, more commonly known, mean to you?" Who should be allowed to participate? What about children, uh, non-church members? Uh, what's your sense of what communion is all about? Uh, community, uh, you know, for me, for me, it's along the lines of what we're talking about. Baptism is a part of saying um, my brothers and sisters are in community with me, and we are. This is representative of us believing the same thing. Um, you know, interestingly enough, in unity, we don't do a lot of communion in that in that way. Hmm. So when we do have a communion experience, it's not about the communion representing necessarily the the body and the blood. It's about um, more that idea of sharing together. Again, literally, just just the community. Um, I think it's I. It's it's a sim it's a symbolic sign of us being together, um, and, and unity is how we kind of look at it. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, how often do you, would you say that you would have uh, any sort of bread and wine in a worship on a Sunday morning? Uh, if we're lucky, maybe twice a year. Really? Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Like, like around Easter and maybe around uh, Thanksgiving as well, mm-hmm. um, but it's not. Uh, and some uni churches don't do it at all. Some do it more often. It's not an it's not an integral part, I think, of our of our dogma, our theology. Um, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. What about you, Tina? Any uh, thoughts on the bread and the wine? Yeah, I totally agree with. Okay, mark this. I totally agree with Ogan's take on it. Twice I think it's about community. Just what? Through. I said twice in one show, and we're barely just halfway through. I did not say that before, did I? You said you said you agreed with me earlier. Yes, you did. I, I see. This is why I play things back. Um. <laughs> Cut her off, people. She doesn't know what she's saying. <laughs> I'm just shocked that I agreed with you twice. So much um, agreement. Yeah. So I agree with Ogan in the fact that it's it's about community. It's about committing to you know. Um, Believing the same things as as you know the people around you, and um, yeah, and I attended a UCC church and we we did community about twice a year, and um, you know I'm really not one for symbolism and sacraments and stuff like that, but for some reason um, the 
it, it did mean something to me, and I don't know why. But it, um, I, it was just a spiritual moment for me. Yeah, well, you know, it's one of those um, one of those rituals in the church that has a very sort of serious serious feel. At least for me, growing up, uh, yeah. it was a whenever we had communion, it was serious. We probably did it six to eight times a year, so not you know maybe every other month uh, or a little bit more, um, sometimes less. But we always had, like, the Sunday before we had communion, we would have to have certain readings, and it was like, you need to prepare yourself, you need to be extra holy this week, because uh, we're going to do communion next week. So there was this, and then on the Sunday we had communion, there was a, if you, if you take these elements and you're not in the right place with God, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. So there was this real, like, you better measure up before you participate. I've never heard that before. Yeah, in my church growing up, only those people who were baptized could take communion. That's right. Yeah, same. Well, for us, since everybody was baptized, if you were in the church as a baby, it was only people who had made profession of faith. So people who were, you know, generally late junior high or high school age or older who, who had made that public profession of faith were allowed to participate. Although, you know, what's communion. coming back to me now is. I remember uh, when I was a kid, I went to my my grandmother's church, just very little, you know, like village church, and and what they did for communion was they had grape juice because, you know, they believed that yeah, as Christians we shouldn't drink any kind of alcohol, but for the bread it was it came from my grandmother's bakery and it was like this coconut bread, that was nice. that was really really good and she used to sneak me pieces of it because I used to sit next to her she used to sneak me pieces of the communion bread. Was she damning? Was she damning me? <laughs> Even though you were old enough, she was giving you little little bits of Jesus on the side. He's like, this boy needs Jesus, <laughs> right? Exactly. But but if it's only if it's if it's like I'm not, I hadn't been baptized or anything, I hadn't made a profession of faith, you know. Was she was she was she trying to was she was she damning me in that in that way? Was she crossing lines? Yeah, yeah. Because and I think or she just the idea that enough. Well, yeah, it's hard to say what's going on in, in her mind, but I think a, lot, a reason a lot of people aren't comfortable with children uh, participating is that there is this high view of this sacrament, and I think this is rooting in um, the initial theology, certainly in the Roman Catholic Church and in some form in other traditions, that Christ is actually present in the bread and the wine. And in fact, the doctrine of transubstantiation says yeah. once the priest says the words, Jesus, the bread becomes Jesus, the blood becomes, the wine becomes Jesus' blood. Crazy talk. <laughs> I don't want to find well, anybody listening, but that's crazy talk. <laughs> well, with all respect to our Catholic listeners, I mean, yeah, it's a hard, it's a, it is a hard doctrine to uh, think about, you know, these many years later um, in a modern age. Uh, and you know that you know what was happening at this sacrament was part of the discussions that were happening in the um, in the Reformation. And so Luther said, no, you know, this is not turning into Jesus, but he is present spiritually in some special way. And John Calvin spoke of um, the believer's mystical union with Christ, and that uh, the sacrament was the visible sign of something sacred. Happened when you read the Bible and t 
take things too literally. Okay, so I have a question for you then, Ogan. Don't assume that even when Jesus was doing it, he was doing it metaphorically. Of course, he... right when he says, "This is yeah, eat this is bread. This is my body, blood. and drink this cup. This is my blood." Why do we gotta? Why why would they make that leap to thinking that it's actually? But anyways, what's your question, Tina? So, so I, I get I get what you're saying, and I want to know. What does it mean then when the new uni- unity churches do it? What it, what does it mean to them? That's what I'm saying. It's a just symbol, a community symbol, thing. Just yeah, a symbol of community. And for many uh, people in unity who came from other traditions where it was meaningful to them, they still want to hold on to a piece of that ritual. Unity doesn't have a lot of rituals. Right. And there is there is a lot of power mm-hmm. in in ritual, whether, you know, in church or out of church, there's a lot of power in terms of meaning and bonding in, in ritual. So what do we hold on to when we come from other faiths and other traditions of Christianity to unity? Because, you know, the vast majority of people in unity did not grow up in unity. That um, you know, this age. So they want to hold on to, yeah. Oh yeah, so they want they want to bring in other things. Some, I mean, like somebody asked me the other day for Ash Wednesday if we gonna sprinkle ashes on people's foreheads. I'm like, N- no, we're, right. We're, we're not. A, we're not Catholic. B, I don't think that's in the Bible anywhere. And C, you know, I don't think Lent needs to be a period of depressive mourning. I mean, you know. That's let's re let's reevaluate that. So no, no, no ashes for us. Yeah, and I you know, I think there can be something powerful in this um, in this ritual even if you're sort of reappropriating it or you're pulling out some of that mystical um, spiritual element um, and uh, a good good friend and regular pub theologian uh, Chris who Ogan knows, uh, we were talking about this at Pub Theology here in Holland last night and he's an atheist and he said, "What's up, Chris?" Yeah, and he said, we'll get it. we need to get him on the show soon. Yes, we do. And he said, that, you know, as, as someone who's not a person of faith, I think of communion now as an act of solidarity with Jesus and the prophetic movement that Jesus represented, caring for the marginalized, speaking truth to power, living in love um, and forgiveness even toward enemies. And he says, when I take communion, that's how I appropriate it, um, so it doesn't have some of that religious spiritual content, yet it's deeply meaningful, and it has that community aspect that you talked about, and also that connection to this person of history. I like Chris's view on it. I'm going with him. <laughs> okay, vote for Chris. Vote yeah, for Chris. I like it too. We are dismissed. <laughs> uh, oh All right, let's keep us keep us moving here. Number four says, and this is a quote, says, God is not both love and wrath. Who said that? Do we know who said that? Is that you, this Brian? Is one of the, this is one of those social media quotes that shall remain, its source shall remain anonymous. Anonymous. God is not both love and wrath. Can it. God be love and wrath? No. 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 That's it. No. How could you be? If I mean, if you're unconditional love, you don't have wrath. If you have unconditional love, you don't have wrath. Uh, what about as a parent? Does wrath ever come into play as a as a parent? Oh, no. Did you say yes? I said no. I said hell yes. <laughs> kids piss us off all the time. We get angry with kids. 
we're, we're, we're okay, but there we are humanizing God again. No, I'm saying he acts about parents. We human parents, yes. I'm not saying God does. I don't. I don't yeah. See well, can't we extrapolate? Uh, there's a lot of language about God as father, or in some traditions, God as uh, divine mother. And can't we yeah. extrapolate that wrath might be a part of that? Wrath rooted in love. I don't see God as like I a chastening say, wrath or a disciplining wrath. No, I don't believe. I can say extreme exasperation, but not wrath. God's gonna have a bunch of spoiled. Spiritual but, children, then. Are you going? I might get spoiled. <laughs> but you see, see again. I'm going. This, this is this is back to I think discussion we had last week. We I only think we're going to disappoint God if God has some attachment, and I don't think God has any uh, uh, attachment. I don't yeah, God. your view of God has a lot to play here. It was, yeah. Has everything. Everything. Not just a not just a little. With everything. Yeah, uh, exactly. So no, I don't. I don't believe that um, that God's gonna get impatient or irritated with us um, like we do with our with our children. Right. If if by that the person is referring to the idea of eternal conscious torment, um, that wrath means God sending someone to a place of punishment where they are physically, mentally, spiritually suffering till the end of time, then I agree that that doesn't sound like God to me. No. Um, guys, I have some friends watching, and um, he, my one friend just said, you don't need wrath to raise your children. You need expectations and trust. Ooh, I like that. Expectations you know and trust. Sometimes you need to put the fear of God in children. But sometimes, sometimes <laughs> you have to give them a timeout, though, right? Like, well, timeout is not wrath, though. When I think wrath, I think uncontrollable anger. Yeah. Yeah. And it and it's and that well when and when you put it in that light, it's hard to imagine. You know, you can't imagine God being out of control. Like the, he's the opposite of that. Yeah. I know that, that flood was pretty something else. You know, <laughs> although the flood, well, that's true. We do. There are some. Yeah. Let's, let's not forget that. Let's not forget that one time where as long as the sun was in the sky, people were getting slaughtered. You know. Let's but with with that wrath, or was he just like, "This is common. <laughs> I'm warning you." <laughs> I'm just listen, listen. If you, I, I, if you, as God, wipe out the entire species of Earth and save all the eight people, I think you're pretty pissed. Like, well, that's gonna get us into the whole Noah story because their world was not the world at that point. But that's a different discussion, in my opinion. I don't think Noah existed either, but that's a whole other discussion too. <laughs> you haven't I don't think Noah existed. We keep having but did the, about the discussions we're not going to have. I think we should but, but, have but, but there has been there has been proof that there was a flood in that area during well, that time. Well, yeah, and the the the, the tale like science that, has proven it. I'm not disagreeing that there wasn't there wasn't a flood. I'm not disagreeing that it wasn't a big one. I'm not because there again that 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 flood tale is part of many different cultures. That's and right. Many different people experienced it. Um, so. You know, why not? Why not? So, conceivably, they're saying, well, you know, if there was a flood this big, there was a lot of devastation, but we are still here. Why are we still here? If there was a flood this massive, why are we, people and animals, still here? Well, some of us must have been saved during the time of the flood. Oh, so let's let's create the story about Noah and the ark and the animals. There's a lot. Yes, yeah, there's a lot of stories that have that style. I can't think of the technical um, fable, literary archetypal term for that, but it's. Say again. Lies. 
No, 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 no. Stop it. Fable was nicer than lies. Wow. No, but it, you're exactly right. They're trying to say, well, uh, well, you know, we had this devastation, or there's back in our history, we remember there was a at least localized flood, but it was big enough to seem global, whatever sense they had of that. And how are we still here? And exactly. So, so you know, retroactively creating stories to explain. Yes. Like, or why don't snakes have legs? Well, because there was a nasty one in the garden, and God punished it to ride on its belly for. You know, for Babel to explain yeah. different languages. You know, these exactly. all all myths. Well, someone, that, on, that goes... someone on Twitter is going to fill us in on the technical term for these stories. Okay. Lies. <laughs> Stop it, Ogan. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so whether or not there was a historic Noah, we know at least there was a, a boat, right? Mm-hmm. What? No. <laughs> they're, yes. still, they're still searching for that thing. They have found it yet. <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. Uh, why don't we move into uh, our uh, political question. What is appropriate for churches and pastors um, regarding discussing politics, elections, and so forth? Um, we just had the Iowa caucus last night, so we'll fresh off of that. Field to burn. I'm not endorsing any particular candidate. I'm just <laughs> goes right there. You just like how it says, sounds. <laughs> That's pretty clever. Um, I, I, Brian, the bigger picture, I mean, it's not just about politics, I think. I mean, the bigger picture is how much does the church have a right to tell you how to live your life? I mean, it's no different if, if they discuss politics from the pulpit and, and you know, you're an extremely faithful person and you believe every word that comes out of your, you know, minister or pastor's mouth that is, is gospel and you need to follow it to the T. They have a lot of impact and they have to really take that into consideration. I mean, that's, I don't know. It's their opinion, and, and they're kind of really spreading it. Isn't that what the church power. often does, though, is help tell you how to live your life uh, or at least give you guidance for it? Yeah, but that, that's what I'm saying. It's like, but, yeah. But I guess politics they, should I, be... I'm just saying they have to be really discerning with what they say, or how you know. I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. And the, we have the issue of the separation of church and state. And churches are uh, nonprofits based on not crossing that, not crossing some line of uh, politics. Yeah, but but the the truth of the matter is, our 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 politics, our our system of governance, is a reflection of our our faith and our beliefs. I mean, yes. When you, when you look when you look at the laws that you know govern this country, you know it's it is based on a lot of faith principles. Um, but often, so so in 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 unity and new thought, I often come across the problem of um, folks in my tradition disengaged from politics. Because it's the you know I don't want to get I don't want to ruin my energy by getting in all that nasty politics stuff. Yeah, it's, it can be ugly business. So so what I say to them is, it should be the contrary. You should be engaged in order to help bring about the changes you want to see. If you want a country that's more um, loving and accepting of all people, of all faiths, of all lifestyles. If you believe that that's how we should live, 
and we should have laws that reflect that. We should go and elect folks to office who stand for those things as well because us us wishing it's going to happen isn't going to make it happen. We have a we have a system where by laws are changed. Yeah, so how do you navigate that as a pastor and speaking to a community regularly? Um, do you give implications about, well, here, do you make connections? Do you let people make the connections on their own when you draw a certain so for uh, me, principles? So for me, what I, what I also try to do is help navigate people's, people's feelings about that get stirred up. So, for example, you know, you know, we have Donald Trump, who is who is managed to pretty much get on everybody's nerves except his diehard supporters. But uh, you know, we have so in my community, people who are are riled up and upset and angry by the things he says, and and are horrified that he might actually become our president and, and making promises to leave the country if he becomes president and all that kind of stuff. And I invite people to realize that, you know. Every everything that comes up is an opportunity for us to get clear about where we are in our own beliefs systems. You know, everything that comes up is an opportunity to see and experience the presence of God. So, so yeah, Donald Trump rising up is um, is truly a, a he's he's the embodiment kind of of. Let's call it the dark side of us, the dark thoughts of us, the the, the thoughts that see the fear. The fear. Yeah. So, how would you communicate? Let's let's say, for example, that you had a person or even a group of people in your church community or your community of faith that were supporters of his. Mm-hmm. How would you? Uh, been to a Unity Church, my friend? Yeah, I'm, I'm right. I, yeah, this why it's purely <laughs> hypothetical. It's hypothetical. Oh, it's truly hypothetical. <laughs> what, what do you mean? What would I say to them? You come back from Disney World and everybody's voting for Trump. Well, I mean, <laughs> like, like Tina says, that's that's their right. I'm not. I am not going to tell anyone who to vote for. I, I am. I am trying to get my people to not, you know, do that bushel buy into the fear bushel over the light thing and not. And not yeah. get engaged, not to say, oh, there aren't any good politicians out there, so we're not even going to engage in the political process. Um, like me. Right, exactly. So so to encourage them to get engaged and encourage them not to sink into that place of anger and hatred against any single politician. It's not about that. See them as an right, opportunity right. to get in touch with our own fears and our own you know, resentments and our own and our own darkness, and I realize that yeah, that yeah. that none, yes, none of them are perfect, and despite all the promises they're saying now, it's, right. you know, when they get into office, it's a whole different, it's a whole different. Yeah, but, but do you really think? Okay, do you really think that that's them? Um, that that that's them breaking promises, or do you think that once they get into that political system, it, it, there's so many things fighting against them? No, I I believe we we have we have three branches of government. So like you know the president, the president has very little executive power to just make a law or or put something in effect, and you know the founding fathers of this country set it up that way. So it's not a monarchy anymore. We have three three branches of government. There's checks and balances, and and it, you know it may seem messy and awful at times, but I think big picture overall. It's a good system that works, so that one branch doesn't gain too much power 
to to run the lives of other people. Now, granted, one can make the argument is happening all behind the scenes with the billionaires and the amount of money they pour into the system. That's a whole other discussion. But if you look at it purely from the governmental side of things, I think it's a system that ultimately works. It's slow. It's cumbersome. Sometimes it gets a little icky, like church. But um, it's... I, I think it works. So no, I I think I think they you know politicians running for office have a you know they do a mix of stating the intentions that they want to bring about, um, saying things that they know will appeal to people to vote for them, and they may get into office and try to bring some of these things about, but because of the way the government structured, it won't work. Yeah, yeah. The president just can't declare, hey, I want this to happen, and boom, it happens. Yeah, they have to fight for it and work for it. And Brian, Brian, what about you? What do you tell your churches? What do you, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think the uh, the thing you're not allowed to do, as Oga noted, was endorse specific candidates. I think that crosses a definite line that you're not allowed to do. Mm-hmm. But I also agree that the church is a place to um, teach people uh Values that uh, reflect life and wholeness and human flourishing and justice. And I think the church has a role to be a voice of um, justice and prophetic witness and to even get out in the streets when we don't see justice happening in our communities from our, um, whether it's our community leaders or people in authority uh, to um, protect us. So when there's police violence, I've seen... um, yeah, churches greatest, and clergy leaders in the streets, and I and I greatest applaud that. Activists of our of our time were ministers. That's right. Okay. Exactly okay. right. Okay, exactly Brian. Right. Here you go. I am a member of your church, and I am not going to vote because I think the whole system's ridiculous. What, what do you say to me? Well, I mean, I you know you you can't tell anyone. Uh, you know what to do or how to feel. I think what you can say is we have this opportunity to, at least in one way, have a voice. But I also think um, we shouldn't put all our eggs in one basket and think things will magically get better with this one voting act every four years. I think if we're not getting involved in our local communities, if we're not seeking um, the good of our neighbors, uh, you know, throughout the week, throughout the years, um, if we're not speaking out and giving voice to the voiceless, then, you know, we're not doing our duty as citizens. So I understand someone who is sort of cynical about the whole political process and says, well, hey, it doesn't matter who gets elected from which party because they end up looking quite the same, whether it's foreign policy or domestic policy um, and so forth. You know, there's some nuances, but our two parties are so close together um, in many ways that I don't, you know, I'm not persuading you, am I? I, I'm a sitting failing. here wondering if you've ever thought about going into politics. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. I'd vote for you, Brian. There we go. All right, that's all that matters. So wait, seriously, you're not you're not voting. You're not you're not being part of. The oh vote. no, I'll totally vote, but I won't talk about it. Oh yeah. Why not? <laughs> Now's your chance. Because I think it's pointless. I think I think everybody attaches themselves to a certain candidate, and then they just argue with other people, and nobody's really listening to each other. They're just trying to get their point across. Yeah, it can be it it can be very uh, uh, narrow-minded in terms of 
you know, <clears throat> voted along party lines or, you know, but, but as we are seeing, this is, this is a very interesting political um, experience we're having here where, you know, the, the, the strong... The Trump and Bernie thing? Yeah, strong, some of the, two of the strongest candidates are those who are really, you know, bucking the establishment and, and, and on opposite ends of the spectrum, like going really far out, like, you mm -hmm. know. Um, so, so I think I think we're getting to that point where hopefully we're really beginning to become like some of the other grown-up countries in the world, where we say, you know, let's actually think about what's best for us versus, you know, that's what the party is about. But but I've lived in many parts of this country, Ogan, and the people in the different parts of this country would tell you very different things on what's best for this country. I feel like, like as I travel around, I feel like we're more like Europe. Like we should be tiny little countries instead of one big one. I mean, so I mean, so what, 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 what I've seen happen in the last few years is that kind of trickle up thing. So look at, <laughs> look for example, <clears throat> at at same sex marriage. Yes. How how that became you know legal nationwide not because it started at at the top but it started at the you think time. that's not a battle that's going on still I, I no, Europe no, is more unified than we are right now Ogan oh no no I I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you I'm not disagreeing with you uh, about that we, we will always have I think our internal squabbles because you know from the beginning the United States was made up of nation of many and we have a lot of we had a a lot of diversity, and there's diversity in Europe too. And you know, when we look at the the, the, the influx of, of refugees and so on, there's there's beginning to be a lot of you know splintering and and friction there uh, too, as as cultures clash and and collide and stuff like that. But I think w what I'm trying to say is that change more often than not, especially in this country, comes from the bottom up, from, from below. You know where the people are saying, even if it's a small minority at first, are saying, "This is not okay. This needs to change." And even though it may trickle up to the point where the law changes, of course we're going to still have people holding on to the old way of things. So I would make the argument, you know, let's look at let's look at race. Of course, racism still exists. Of course, the idea of um, people. Um, judging and not liking each other on ethnicity exists. Of course, it exists, but is it is it better than 50, 100, 150 years ago? Yes. Is the law now on the side of equality? Yes. So I hear you. So you know that's that's what I'm talking about, and I don't think it really matters, kind of necessarily who is in office now. Would would same-sex marriage have been legalized and had that groundswell movement if you know President Obama hadn't gotten on board and said out loud the first sitting president to say, I think I think this should be okay, you know who's who's to tell? Maybe maybe not. But I think you know in in so many ways the the president holds mostly a very symbolic office, you know, and and in a lot of ways that's what leaders are. There's this symbol of how we progress forward. Well, I, I know we're running out of time here, but I, I just I want to ask both of you. I want you both to answer this. So I, I agree that our country is moving in the right direction, 
But if you could forecast a year from now, we're all sitting here. What happens in this election? Tell me what oh, you think. Burn, is baby, happen. feel the burn. Wow. And now what you want to happen, what you really think is going to happen. That's what I really think is going to happen. Okay. I, I really I really think this is gonna happen for, for a number for a number of reasons. I think a lot of people will come out and vote and statistically when more people turn out to vote, um, Democrats win the election. Now, who's gonna win the nomination? Is it gonna be Bernie or is it gonna be Hillary? I think I think Bernie's gonna win the nomination because of uh, I mean the groundswell behind him is unreal. It is unreal. And so I, I, I live up here in uh, Massachusetts, but it's it's just a few miles away from the New Hampshire border. I spend a lot of time in New Hampshire. Half the time, I don't know what state I'm in because the border is so close. State um, of confusion. Exactly. <laughs> um, but but there but there is that real groundswell um, for for him because. Because his ideas are, I think, ultimately what a lot of people want, regardless of what side of the line they're on. Good example: free college education. I don't care what, I don't care who you are. I don't think there's anybody who's going to say no to free college public education. Oh, can I mean no disrespect, but I feel like you don't hang out with a lot of people that don't believe the way you believe. Oh, well, that's true. I ain't gonna argue that. <laughs> But 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 are you gonna are you seriously gonna tell me that given given a choice to pay for college and not pay for college, I don't care what party you belong to or what your religious affiliation is, you are actively gonna say, No, I would rather pay for college than go for free. All right, so I would say uh I'm not gonna make a specific prediction, but I do think whoever wins the Democratic nomination will win. So that will be my non-prediction prediction, but I think the bottom line from what uh, we were saying here on this Again, whole political... Not, not endorsing a particular candidate. Exactly. The question. Exactly. I've got to cover myself. <laughs> yep. Didn't hear anything there. Um, but on the issue of uh, politics, you know, I think the point is that we have, uh, if we're fortunate enough, a voice to use in the society, and we, not, we need to use that voice, whether it's in our community, on the streets, in the ballot box, we need to use that voice for justice and to help lift up voices uh, that haven't been given that same um, opportunity. So, that's okay, the Brian, I'll vote. Final <laughs> word there on on politics. There you go. So that brings us to our close of our show. Thanks for tuning in, folks, to Pub Theology Live. Love you to help spread the word. Follow us on Twitter at Pub Theology. Like us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash pubtheology. You can watch Tuesday nights live at 9 o'clock Eastern at pubtheology.com or listen anytime at soundcloud.com slash pubtheologylive. And you can find a group near you, uh, same website, pubtheology.com. And we'd love to see you back here next week. Stay, stay tuned. We got we to gotta continue this discussion because Tina never answered my Oh, question. we're going to. Yeah. Oh, I didn't go. forget. Hit the music and then post show. <laughs>